Kids, before you're dismissed, how awesome was it that we get to hear from the Groshes this morning to see what they're doing, the ministry that they're doing for, I think you said, 30, 33 years working to put this book in a language for people that don't have this book. And I think that's really important, not just for our kids to see, but for all of us to see. And so thank you for being here, Groshes, for your faithfulness, and that we get to be a part of that. Okay, kids, you are now dismissed. Head back in the back. You're headed outside this morning. Outside to the sprinklers. So good morning again, and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor, and we're grateful for the freedom that we have to gather in this room, 4th of July weekend. So much to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for, and so truly we are. Um, I'm thankful for our pastors and our elders. Uh, one of our elders, Ryan Martin, shared from 1 Samuel 4 a couple weeks ago. Last week, Pastor Ray shared from chapters 5 and 6, and so this morning we We'll continue to work our way through 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel, the end of chapter 6, the the beginning of chapter 7, and that's where we're going to be this morning. We have Bibles in the back, so if you don't have a Bible or you'd like the ESV version, you can grab one of the Bibles in the back corner there. You can keep it, Uh, but if you don't, we'll put it on the screen as well. So we're going to start reading this morning in verse 19 of chapter 6. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with the great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath, Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Verse 1. And the men of Kiriath Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jearim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all of the house of of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all of the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that your word would speak, would challenge, and would encourage us as we live our day-to-day lives. Your word is truth, is powerful, and God, we come to it this morning. We pray that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that, that your word would overcome us. And we recognize, God, that we come into this room this morning with all sorts of obstacles that we carry. And we're tired, and we're stressed, and we're discouraged, and we're stuck. But God, we know that your voice, through your word, through your spirit, can overcome any and all of those obstacles. And so, God, we pray that through these next few minutes, that we, each of us, individually, that we would hear from you. We'd be directed by you. So we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've ever read the book, Into the Wild, it's a book by John Krakauer. It's a really famous or popular book. There's a, a movie that they made based on the book, and it's a true story, based on a true story of a young man, Christopher Johnson McCandless. And here's how the book opens up. First couple of sentences. In April 1992, a young man from a well-to-do family hitched hiked to Alaska and walked alone into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. His name was Christopher Johnson McCandless. He had given $25,000 in savings to charity. He abandoned his car, most of his possessions, burned all the cash in his wallet, and he invented a new life for himself. And so this is the story of Into the Wild, a young man who abandons I mean, everything he knows and everything that he says has. He, he confided into his sister. She was doing an interview not too long ago about the whole story. And, and the words that he used to his sister was that he was divorcing his family. He was divorcing his parents. He was getting rid of the expectations he was getting rid of the materialism and the comforts. And in the book, I mean, he, he cuts up his licenses, his identification. He gets rid of his money. And he begins to live the life of a traveling nomad with nothing, with no one. Nobody knew where he was. And so the story, as the story goes, I mean, you see this young man on the run. And the adventures and the challenges from hiking across, hitchhiking across deserts, sneaking into Mexico and going into prison and battling the elements and canoeing and fighting different people and being robbed and all sorts of things that here this, this young man faced, the people that he met and the challenges that he had. At one point in the story, there's a switch or there's a turn. He decides he's going to make way for kind of his dream, living in the wild of Alaska. 
So he hitchhikes across the desert. He finally he catches the plane. He gets to, to the city in Alaska, and he begins hiking into the wild, crosses over a stream until 12, 13 miles into the wild, he discovers a bus, a deserted old bus, calls it the magic bus, and for his time in the wild, he decides he's going to live in this bus, and so he begins to just live there. But quickly, quickly you start to realize or kind of feel the challenges of living in the wilds of Alaska. Very quickly, Christopher begins to become completely starving. I mean, weeks of berries and small game, but he is completely starving. And it's really, it's a tragic story. You read the story and, and you just want him to go home. You're just waiting. I mean, it wasn't, it was less than perfect of a home situation, but you're reading it and he gets to the wilds and you're just hoping, just go home. It's not all that you thought it was going to be. I mean, he was starving until finally he realizes that he could not live in this bus forever because of the specifically the food situation. So he decides it's time to go back to the city. So he begins the hike back out of from the magic bus, and he begins the hike back to the city where he realizes or he comes up to what was once that, that easily forgeable stream in April. Now, months later, that stream had become a very torrential whitewater river that there was no way that he could cross. And so he realizes he is stuck. And he has no other options. He goes back to the magic bus where he lives out the rest of his life until he starves to death. And what we found in the bus was a journal that he kept. And here was one of his, here was his last entry. He said, 114 days in the wild, death looms. I am too weak to walk out. I am literally trapped in the wild. And it is tragedy. The, the dream that he had of living in the wild had trapped him, and he was literally, physically unable to go home. Why do I share this story with you? Because when I read 1 Samuel 6 and 1 Samuel 7, and I look at the Israelites, they remind me of Christopher. They are stuck, and they have run from home, and they are living in their sin, and they are ready to return to God. And it's not just the Israelites. You know, I was just thinking about what does it look like for people to, to leave the God they once worshipped, to run away from the God they once knew. I think of all, tragically, all the people in my life, people that I know who once walked with God, who once worshipped God, who once loved God, who now aren't living as if they love God or worship Him or even know Him. Many, many people do that, drift away slowly from the God they once worshipped. There was a friend of mine who, when I knew her well, she was devout, 
believer. She was an evangelist. She was a leader. I mean, she was passionate about God. And over not too long ago on Facebook, I started noticing posts that just didn't seem like the person that I knew, the, the philosophy that she was quoting, the things that she was commenting on, the things that she was saying. And so I sent her a message and I said, what, what is going on? What has happened? Like, when I knew you, you were this way, and now you are completely the opposite. And here was her response back. I'll quote it. I had several experiences that made my faith emotionally confusing. A lot of these emotional experiences had to do with relationships. Despite grace, there's still a constant awareness that even some of the smallest things that you do are fundamentally bad and deserving of punishment. It wasn't until I stepped away from my faith that my closer relationship started to reflect what I believe to be, be unconditional love. She was tired of guilt. She was searching for unconditional love. And so what did she do? She stepped away from her faith. So as we come to this text this morning, and we recognize that maybe it's sudden for some of us, like with this young lady over a period of months because of some experiences, maybe for some of us, it's a slow and gradual drifting away from God. We once worshiped him, but now we look back 20, 30 years ago, and we say, where am I now with God? We take this idea, and we look at the text, and here's the question that I want to look at this morning. What does God think of this? How, how can we return to God? Is he, like Christopher experienced, a raging river that forbids us to cross? Or is there another story for us as we seek to go back to God? And so as we look at this text, I've outlined it with three main points, running from God, returning to God, and the difference that it makes. So 1 Samuel 7, you can't, when, you, when you're studying narrative like First Samuel, we can't just focus on chapter 7. We really got to see kind of the, the whole wider context. And so when we look at First Samuel 7, we have to kind of, if we're going to understand it correctly, we have to understand it in the context of the story that we're in. And so First Samuel 7 really is the conclusion of everything we've seen back to chapter 4, or maybe even better than conclusion. First Samuel 7 is the capstone. It's, the, it's how it is all wrapped up. And so we have to look at 1 Samuel 7 in connection with everything that's happened all the way back to 1 Samuel 4. Where did 1 Samuel 4 start? Ryan Martin, one of our elders, shared there was a battle at Ebenezer. Can you, 1 Samuel 7, where does 1 Samuel 7 end? Another battle in Ebenezer. And so I really believe the author of 1 Samuel, wants us to see the scene of 1 Samuel 4 through 1 Samuel 7 and the 20 years that happened between 4 and 7. And so if we kind of look at it, kind of take a step back from it, kind of try to describe it, what's happening here from 4-1 to the end of chapter 7, if that was to use one phrase to describe what was happening, it's the phrase, my first point here, it is running from God. 
What describes 4-1 to 7-1? Israel, the Israelites were running from God. And I think we can best see that with the question they, that they ask in verse 20 of chapter 6. Take a look at that. Underline it. This is, to me, a pivotal question. It is an insightful question for us to see what was really happening to Israel. So they ask a question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? So you remember what just happened, right? We, Pastor Ray talked about it last week. But the ark comes back into Israel. And what do the, the Israelites think? We, we, have, we have arrived. We have, we have finally returned to God. His presence is with us. And what happens? The people, they, they look at the ark. Some think they gawked at it. They stared at it. They disrespected it. And what happened? Seventy men die. And so this leads them to this question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? What is the implied answer here? Someone? No one. I mean, you can almost feel this kind of welling up emotion for the Israelites. They go back to chapter four, and this is the conclusion that we get. Who can stand before, before God, the holy God that he is? Chapter four, we went into battle. Remember at Ebenezer, the Philistines are barreling down on them. And so they say, well, let's bring the ark into battle. And what happens? Eli and his sons die. They're defeated. It's tragic. We can't stand before God. We've been defeated in battle. The Philistines take the ark. And the word that's, or the phrase that's repeated in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is that the, the heavy hand of the Lord was upon them. But the Philistines can't even stand in the presence of God. Tumors, panic, and death. And so they strap the ark in chapter 6 to the cow. They slap the cow. Well, I don't, they push the cow back into Israel. However they got the cow to move, the cow comes back to Israel. And again, you think this is it. We, we, have, we are back with God. The ark has returned. And the 70 people die. Who can stand before the Lord God? No one. And you can feel the discouragement of Israel. We've lost battle. The Philistines have lost. We look at the ark, and we continue to lose. And you, you sense this feeling of we can't be in his presence. The ark is for our bad, and it is not for our good. And this leads to the second question. So right after that first question, to whom they ask another question that leads to it. It says, to whom shall he go up away from us? To whom shall he go up away from us? What are they saying? They're saying, since we can't approach God, and since we can't, clearly can't even be before him without people being killed, then, then we want to get the ark out of our presence. Where can we dump this thing? Where can we get rid of it? Because when it's with us, bad things happen. And I like how they respond. They call the messengers, they say, the Kiriath Jearim. Okay, as you look at kind of what that Hebrew phrase means, it's kind of interesting. It means city on the woods, the wooded people. 
Okay, I pictured the elves in the Lord of the Rings, like what, what coming, calling the, the weird people in the woods and saying, come and get the ark, take it to your wooded community because we don't want it. We want to live our lives outside of the presence of God. Take it away. This was not, some, some might think that they were setting up a new temple for them to continue to worship like they did at Shiloh, but that's not the case here. The purpose for them calling these wooded people to come and get the ark was so that they could live outside of his presence. And so they walked away. We're, we're done with God. We're done with him. How long did this go on? Verse 2 of chapter 7, 20 years. For 20 years. I mean, think back where you were 20 years ago. I mean, that's, it's a long time. And for 20 years, they said, we do not want to be around the presence of God. We will live stuck in our sin, living the way that we want to live. They have effectively walked away from him forgetting him out of sight and out of mind until something shifts, something changes. Verse 2 of chapter 7. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Okay, you see the phrase there? Now, as we kind of interpret what this is saying here, different versions will kind of treat this phrase differently. And it's really important for us to see what he's saying with this phrase. So what is he saying? Is he saying that during the 20 years that the ark was in the woods, that all through the 20 years, the people lamented after God? Or, it's kind of what the ESV is implying here, or some versions like the NIV and the CSB translate it, that this is something that happened chronologically, that after 20 years, the people of Israel then lamented after the Lord. So it's chronological, not something that just happened at the same time as the 20 years. And so I would tend to side with the NIV here, that he's saying that for 20 years, Israel lived in their sin, out of the presence of God, walking from him, walking away from him. But then after 20 years, something happened and they began lamenting after the Lord. Or to put it in the words of my illustration, Israel was ready to cross the river. I mean, they were ready to go. They were ready to find God. And here's the good news. It's possible. Samuel's going to tell them, you can cross the river. It's been 20 years, and in a matter of just a few verses, he's going to lay it out for them. You can come back to God. His grace is enough. His mercy is enough. His love is enough. And so Samuel's going to detail or outline for them how they might return to God. And so this is kind of the second scene of chapter 7, verses 3 through 9. Look at verse 3 and 4. Samuel said, to all of the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, three things he's going to tell them. Put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. You see, th those are the three commands that there is no returning back to God, crossing the river, 
unless you do these three things. In other words, and hear this, lamenting was not enough. I mean, it is, I see this. So I get fired up a little. We, we get broken over our sin and we cry and we weep. But listen, it's not enough. It's not enough to see your sin and to be sad about your sin. Otherwise, Samuel would have said after they lamented, you, you are back. You are back with God. But it was not enough. This is the biblical idea of the theological word of repentance. What does it mean to repent? And Samuel teaches them, if you want to cross the river, do these three things. Put away the foreign gods. That Israel, you can't come worship God if you're worshiping the Asheroth or you're worshiping the Baal, where they go into these temples. And I can't even, I'd get in trouble if I described what they did. I mean, it was horrendous what they would do sexually to elicit the gods to give them rain and sun so that their crops could grow. And Israel had just adopted it. Like, it's not that big of a deal. This is what everyone's doing. We, we live off of our crops, and so we need the rain and the sun. And so they just, they just adopted this practice. And what Samuel's telling them is saying, this is sin, false worship. And so this, this first point of, hey, you've wandered from God, and it may be 20 years of wandering, it may be 30, 40, 50, it may be a month. And if you want to come, to God, come back to God, you have got to acknowledge your sin, and you've got to get rid of it. You've got to get rid of it. And logic, I'm a logical person. Logically, this makes a lot of sense, right? That if we're, whatever our sin is that we struggle with, something on our phone, something we look at, something we believe, something we do, that, that we can't return to God at the same time that we are surrounding ourselves in these habits and these addictions and these thoughts, these beliefs that it's not possible to do these things and cross the river back to God. It makes sense relationally, right? In our marriages and in our friendships, there are things that we can't do if we want to have a healthy relationship with our spouse. And you can't reconcile with your spouse if you're continuing in your awful activity. And this is what Samuel's saying. You want to cross the river let go of the baggage. Get rid of the poles. What did Josiah do in Second Chronicles? When he saw the poles, he read God's word and he recognized, we, we can't do this. He took the poles and he chopped them down. He put them to sawdust. He lit them on fire. I mean, took serious, radical action against his sin. And so this is what Samuel is saying. It's not just weeping. Don't weep to me. Don't come, don't weep. You weep, that's okay, but if you really mean it, get rid of your sinful habits. If you're serious about coming back to God, get rid of them. Okay, I'm too, too hyped up here. What else are they to do? Part of, of getting rid of their, of getting rid of these sins that are in their lives was serving him only, and those go hand in hand. Get rid of this 
and exclusively say, I will serve you only. But it's a second phrase that to me is one of the most interesting. Direct your hearts. Direct your heart. You know, when I was taught the idea of repentance, I remember I was in high school, never heard the phrase, didn't go to church a lot growing up. And so when I heard the word repentance, it was taught this way to me, that repentance is you go this direction, you've been going this direction, and you stop, you turn around, and you go the other direction. That you stop sinning, and you turn, and you walk a different way away from your sin. And, and that's how I was taught. But according to this, that's a, that's a lacking definition of repentance. Repentance is not just stopping sin. According to this, it's not just stopping. It's pursuing. It's redirecting. It's not just about not going this way. Repentance here is clearly about per, what you get to pursue instead. Direct your heart so that you're so in love with God that you are so focused on him that you run to him. And very naturally, when your heart is directed to God, you're not going to be able to run that way because you're directed this way. And I just like the picture of directing your heart. Like, we think of our literal heart, but we, we can keep thinking that way. Like, grab your heart and tell it what to love. Talk to your heart. Teach your heart. I've been directing my kids this summer my youngest son, Jack, has been learning to ride his bike. To learn his bike, I'm directing him. He's pedaling down the street. I've got my hand on the back seat. And, and he's steering out into the, to the road with the traffic. That's not good. And I'm grabbing that seat, and I'm taking the handlebars, and I'm teaching my son. No, no to the street, son. You can't go with the cars. We go to the cul-de-sac. And so I'm telling him. I'm teaching him physically directing him where to go. We were at the beach this last week. We did lots of fishing. I was directing my kids how to fish. Lots of kids, lots of cousins, teaching them how to fish. That's a really fun activity. Tangles and line, yeah. Really relaxing vacation it was. And so I'm directing them how to cast a line. You push this button, and when you, you let go, you... You don't aim for your, your brother's leg. You have a hook on that line. And you don't aim for the tree, and you, you aim for the water, and you let go of the button. And so I'm holding the pole, and I'm telling them, I'm showing them where to go. This is the picture that Samuel uses in repentance of coming back to God with our heart. Tell your heart what to love. Teach your heart what to be centered on. And so the very natural question is this. Matt, how can I tell myself what to love? Like, isn't that preference? Like, isn't, like, how can I just tell my heart, love God, be centered on God only? Well, look at what the Israelites do. Verse 5 and 6, Samuel says, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the people of Israel and Mizpah. I love how they do this. How do they direct their heart? Like how do they remind themselves that God is exclusive and supreme and worthy? They gather together for worship. 
that how do we teach our heart? We come together as the body of Christ and we say, we will remind ourselves, we will direct our hearts through worship, through confession, through the habits that we talk about. We will use these habits to help us to direct our hearts this week to God alone. It's a weekly thing. That's why we, we come every Sunday. That's why it's so important to worship together. It's a weekly opportunity for us to say, hear the songs, see the people, hear the word, heart, this is what we love. This is what we are set upon. And so this is what they do. They draw water and they pour it out before the Lord. This is a physical act that's symbolic of what they're praying for. God, we give you everything. We pour out ourselves before you. This is a physical act that they did that was what they were praying for, their inward spiritual lives. That's what we're going to do with communion in just a few minutes. What is communion? It's us saying, heart, remember, we're not just singing. We're, we're acting it out. We're eating and drinking. We are physically remembering who you are for us in Christ. They fasted. They confessed their sin. So not just lamenting their sin, lamenting after God and his presence. What did they do? They verbalized it. No excuses. They verbalized and confessed their sin in worship, in fasting, saying, we will depend on you fully. And so this is where they are. They have returned to God. They've repented They've crossed the river. We've come back. We've seen our sin and we got rid of it. And we've worshiped you and fasted and we are praying to you. And just like what happens, and I see this all the time, when someone comes to Christ or returns to Christ, what happens the next week? It's the hardest week of their life. Like things happen. Crazy things happen that challenge them. And this is exactly what's happened with Israel. Verse 7. Look at verse 7, the word now. It's like all of a sudden... You're on a spiritual mountaintop. Things are going great. Now, the Philistines actually think it's a great opportunity to come and kill you all. Like, you're all together in worship. The Lord, the Philistine decide, let's go and take advantage of this. And so let's attack them. And immediately in verse 7, you should start to have flashbacks. Right? In Ebenezer, on the battlefield, and here, here come the Philistines. Back to chapter 4. And this is where we start to see the difference that it makes. Israel has been acting differently this time. And we don't have time to compare and contrast, but you should. You should spend this week comparing and contrasting the battle in chapter 7 with the battle of chapter 4. The, 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 the difference, the key difference is how, how do they approach the battle the first time they concocted some idea about the ark, and God's, they're going to kind of force God's hand with some superstitious stuff about the ark. Well, this time, what do they do? They fall on their face, and they ask Samuel, pray for us. They go to God in prayer. They recognize their sin, and they offer a burnt offering. And how does God respond this time? Very different. They responded the right way. God, you must save us because our best ideas won't work. Verse 10, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Verse 12, 
Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called his name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. God rescues them. That they turn to him and they return to him. They fall on their face and he comes and he rescues them and they build this memorial. And Ebenezer, but you know the word, you've heard the word Ebenezer. So it literally means a stone of help, as if to say, Samuel's saying to them and to us today, don't forget the faithful help of God on this battlefield where you did not remember me and you've tried to figure it out yourself and you failed. Remember now that when you turn to me, return to me, that I am there with you and I will help you in your confession and in your heart being directed to me, I will rescue you. And so for us this morning, as we think about this text, some of you are on the run from God. On the run. You think back to where you were in high school, however long ago that was, and you think, look at where I was with God at that time. At camps and leadership and reading my Bible. And you look at your life today and you say, man, how have I drifted this far? How have I ended up here? And, and what does this text tell us? What does God think? What is God saying? He's saying, come back. Return to him. He is not a torrential whitewater river with all these things that you have to do to come back. No, get rid of the sin that you've turned to. Confess your sin. Direct your heart to loving him alone. And so we're going to sing a couple songs. And if that's you, if, you're, if you think, I have run from God for 20 years, then pray. Come pray with me. Come talk to me, and I'd be happy to do that with you. But the point is, is it's not difficult, and it's worthwhile. What happened over 20 years gradually can be changed in an instant, in a moment. And so we, we hope, and I pray that you can do that this morning. And then for, for all of us, that we need to remember that we don't, we, our Ebenezer is not a stone of help, a memorial representing our battle. What is our Ebenezer? It's a wooden cross. That whatever you face today, what is the Ebenezer for us to recall that helps us through whatever we face today? It's the cross. That is what we turn to and say, yeah, God, you Help me eternally with the cross. Yes, God, you were faithful to me by taking care of my most serious problem. And if, God, you have helped me in the biggest way possible through sending your son to die on the cross for my forgiveness, how then would you not also help me today? And so we, we turn and we remember the cross and it gives us confidence and hope for whatever we face today, because we know, we know that whatever it is, God will help us. And so to do that, it's perfect. We take communion. That's what communion is, remembering, helping us to remember what the cross is and how God helps us today. So let's pray and we'll sing some songs. Father, we thank you that you are not a torrential river that prohibits us from coming back to you. But you're a gentle stream. And you beckon us, you call us, 
to come back, to redirect our hearts and to get rid of the sin that we've clung to, these other kings that we've bowed down to, to confess our sin and to come back to you. And so God, I pray that by your spirit, you'd work in our lives. Maybe it's here in these next couple of songs. Maybe it's this week as we consider your word in our lives. God, I pray that you would work in a powerful way that we come back to you. That you are worthy of our hearts and our love and our devotion. God, I pray for all of us too that we would remember. We would remember the faithful, helping love that you showed us in, this, in your son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross. May we be inspired to have hope and confidence in whatever we face because our Ebenezer is not a stone, but it is a wooden cross. And so to that end, we sing. God, we pray that you would help us to not just recall it, not just to remember the facts of it, but to be, to be moved by it. And so God, we, we pray that you help us direct our hearts to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.